0: Welcome to the Beasley Academy podcast, Control-Alt-Breach. In this series, we will learn more about cyber risks and trends as we at Beasley see them from the front lines. To lead you through this series is one of Beasley's top cyber
1: risk managers. Here is your host, Frank Quinn.
2: Today on the podcast, we start our series on ransomware. You may have been hearing about ransomware in the news. The state of Louisiana, for instance, recently declared a state of emergency because ransomware had locked up their computer systems. In our series, we'll be covering what ransomware is, how it gets into a computer system, who the criminals launching these cyber extortion attacks are, and how they use the victim's own computers to encrypt their data and hold it for ransom. As the series progresses, members of Beasley's Breach Response Services team will walk through the progress of a ransomware incident with interviews of the experts we work with at every step along the way. Today's episode starts with the discovery of the initial infection. Future episodes cover containment of the ransomware infection, the difficult decisions involved in whether to pay a ransom, the process of negotiating with a criminal to get the key to decrypt your data, recovery from the ransomware infection, and the investigation afterward to understand what happened, how it happened, and how to ensure it doesn't happen again. Starting us off today is Brandon Welch. When a policyholder reports a suspected ransomware incident to us at Beasley, they'll quickly be on the phone with one of our breach response managers like Brandon. A ransomware incident is often a crisis for the organization experiencing it. In fact, if not handled correctly, it could mean the end of a smaller business, And you want to make sure you're bringing in the right experts to help see you through it.
1: To set the stage of a ransomware incident, imagine that you're an employee in a medium-sized enterprise. When you arrive into the office for the first day, you turn on your computer to begin your workday. But after logging in, you can't access any of your files. You ring the help desk, and they can't access any of their files either. You notice that there's a strange extension on the back end of all your files, except for a .readme uh, file. You open it up, and while the .readme file is in English, the grammar and syntax just seem off. It essentially explains that all of your files have been encrypted. You don't know what to do. IT calls you back to let you know that the company has been a victim of a ransomware attack. Not knowing where to turn, you call up your cyber insurance carrier. I'm Brandon Welch, a Beasley Breach Response Services Manager with the Beasley Breach Response Services team. My primary role when a, one of our insureds have a ransomware incident is to be the first point of contact with Beasley and to help them through it. I'm there to help the insured evaluate their situation and to bring in the experts who have handled hundreds of negotiations with cyber criminals, Experts like today's guest, Lizzie Cookson from Kivo. To begin, how did you get started in the ransomware space?
0: Yeah, Sure. I finished up my degree in digital forensics and entered the incident response industry right as ransomware and cyber extortion was gaining popularity and turning into more than just a small game amateur operation. Um, I started working on a variety of cybercrime cases at at the get-go, but soon ransomware became the majority of the incoming work. And it's still a huge problem. And from what I can tell, after about four years dealing with it, only a tiny fraction of industry professionals really have the experience and the strategy to do anything about it.
1: From municipalities to large organizations, we're seeing a major uptick of ransomware incidents. Is there a reason why?
0: You know, I get that question quite often, and to be honest, um, my response is usually, "Well, why? Why wouldn't we be seeing an upturn in ransomware activity? Because it's it's an incredibly lucrative venture, and unlike other types of hacks, it requires very little skill to execute. So until organizations start backing up their data in a reliable way, uh, the attacks are going to continue.
1: For the benefit of our listeners, can you please explain how ransomware works?
0: So at its most Basic level, ransomware is a type of software that locks you out of your data, and it can do that either by encrypting the contents of each file so that they won't open, or it can do that by encrypting your entire hard drive so the user is completely shut out of their machine, the, the latter being the more disruptive. Nowadays, a lot of ransomware is built to do even more than just encrypt data. It can also be configured to delete volume shadow copies uh, automatically and force quit processes in advance of execution. So if it has a SQL database, it really wants to encrypt that, it will force kill it so that it's definitely going to get encrypted. Um, And then at that point, the threat actor will leave behind sometimes a full ransom note or sometimes just an email address. And that's to prompt the user to reach out to them and pay a fee in exchange for the means to unlock all of that data.
1: Can you explain maybe a bit more about what a shadow copy is?
0: Sure. Volume shadow copy is a technology that's just built into Windows. um, And when you enable it, it can create snapshots of your computer at certain intervals. So you can revert back to that snapshot if you're working on something and you lose it or something happens to the system and you want to go back to yesterday.
1: What are the attack vectors for ransomware?
0: Ransomware attack vectors are widespread. They're varied and they ebb and flow in popularity among cyber criminals. So if we start Way back in 2016, when I first entered the space, attackers really favored phishing emails, just good old phishing email, bad attachment. Um, That was the primary method of malware delivery. This method very much relied on a careless end user um, and probably honestly had a slim margin of success. But it also required very little effort and very little risk on the bad actors part. So it was an attractive option. And then we move into 2017 and, you know, part of 2018, threat actors became a lot smarter and a lot more creative. So rather than sort of cross their fingers and say, well, I hope five out of this these 100 click on the bad file, they took a more active approach um, and started going after companies via brute force RDP attacks, RDP being remote desktop protocol. Um, that This is a native Windows protocol that thousands of companies, maybe more, still allow vendors and contractors and employees to use. uh, And it just allows all of these people to cheaply and very easily access your company's resources when they're in remote locations. Uh, the, The problem with RDP is that unless you're using it behind a VPN, It is visible to anyone with an internet connection, and a rookie hacker only needs to click a few buttons to scan the web for computers that have RDP open, and then they just launch an automated password-cracking program against it, and pretty soon they've gotten access to numerous networks. Um, And this is still a preferred vector by a lot of ransomware groups today, even though it's not the primary vector anymore.
1: Aside from that, have you seen any other uh, shifts in the ransomware space since you've started?
0: Absolutely. I think 2019 has been the, the biggest shift of all. Um, and that is ransomware groups not just doing hacks on their own, but partnering with other malware distributors to do the dirty work for them. Um, a lot of folks are familiar with Emotet and TrickBot. These are Trojans that have the firepower to infiltrate and spread quickly throughout enterprise networks. And while they, they meaning the Trojan gangs, they're only maybe interested in getting your bank credentials, they're sitting on a goldmine of information that if it makes its way into the wrong hands, it can be used to orchestrate a expertly stealthy targeted extortion attack. Um, And what we're seeing are a single targeted attack that can return a six- or seven-figure payday just in one swoop. And that is much more appealing to certain actors than just getting by with, you know, $1,200 here, $3,000 there over the course of a year.
1: Wow, that's uh, very impressive. What's a banking Trojan?
0: Banking Trojan or Trojans in general are types of malware that are meant to go on your system disguised as other legitimate programs. So they're meant to sort of fly under the radar. And banking Trojans in particular started as malware that is just designed to gain access to vulnerable bank accounts and drain the accounts of their funds. Trojans work a little bit differently. Some try to just get your password for your online bank account. Others do it a little more sophisticatedly. They will try to get in through a Session or swipe a session key to later go back in. But the point is, banking Trojans used to only go after banking credentials. They've evolved really amazingly over time to do a host of other information stealing activities. So they basically fingerprint the whole system they're on and they report back to their command and control server hey, we've got a Windows 7 system here. This is its name. This is its registered owner. These are the applications it's running. Oh, and here's all the stored passwords in Google Chrome if anyone wants that.
1: Do these cyber criminals have direct targets? Are they after us?
0: <laughs> after us? Um, that's a that's a funny discussion. I, I think maybe cyber criminals in other areas, um, state-sponsored attacks, hacktivism attacks, they may have specific axes to grind, especially with people in the U.S. Uh, but I have spent a lot of time communicating with these actors over a couple hundred uh, since I've started working in the space. And the sense I get is that they're not really after anyone in particular, they're after money. Um, And that's not to say that that motive won't evolve over time and it won't turn into something more state-sponsored. That's just my my personal experience up to this point.
1: In the past, we've thought of threat actors in a four-tiered fashion. State actors, organized criminal operations, criminal service providers, and amateur operators. Should we still be thinking in those terms?
0: I'm actually hesitant to silo the categories like that, especially in the last six months, because what we're seeing is less of a distinction between those types of actors and more of a collaboration um, and a melting of all of them together. Um, Especially even just just the last two weeks, I'm not sure if you heard about Pure Locker, uh, which was a recently published new variant that has been spotted in the wild. and immediately, the security researchers who identified it and reverse engineered it saw that it is borrowing code from a very well-known backdoor leveraged by some of the biggest APT groups in the world, being the Cobalt Gang and Fin6. And traditionally, APT and ransomware just never cross paths. APT is usually targeted, long con attacks against specific regions for financial gain. Um, They're going in with with a plan, a plan B, a plan C. They're using multiple footholds to keep an eye on things in a company's environment. Ransomware was the opposite. Ransomware did not need sophisticated tools. Like I said earlier, there's always going to be people clicking phishing emails. There's always going to be people that haven't patched their servers. And that, for a long time, was enough for ransomware to be successful. Um, But somebody woke up (laughs) in the last year and a half and said, you know what, we can be a lot more profitable if we work together. Um, and borrow some of these APT tactics and some of these state-sponsored tactics. Um, so what rather than reinvent the wheel and try to learn things maybe they're not good at, they, they're just partnering with other groups um, to maximize profit across the board. Um, and we're seeing the backlash from that.
1: What demographics are associated with these cyber criminals?
0: So if we're thinking about it in regional terms, uh, they're coming from Eastern European countries, Israel, Netherlands. And at this point, they've they've also started hiring domestic staff based in the U.S. and Canada, mainly to operate the email inbox part of the operation. Um, I don't really have a sense of more specific demographics like the age or the gender of these cyber criminals, although I'm sure it's a mix. Um, and p- part of the reason I, I don't think too much about it is that to be able to do our job effectively, which is get A victim from point A to point B, even if that means paying a ransom, we do have to take the emotion out of this very heightened transaction and just focus on getting to a successful resolution. If if you start imagining who you're talking to and get caught up in what can be antagonistic communications, you're going to start putting your client at risk. So I always say the clients are allowed to be emotional during this time, but we're really not, at least not during this phase of the investigation.
1: So, Lizzie, you mentioned uh, domestic staff hires uh, based in the U.S. and Canada. Can you speak a bit more to that?
0: Sure. That's actually a relatively recent development. Uh, I would say recent in the last year, at least from from what we can tell. Um, A lot of these actors have a language barrier. Uh, They're relying on Google Translate to communicate with us, and a lot can get lost in those communications. And just like any other company, they are actually receptive to feedback, and they get frustrated just like we do um, when we're asking for something and they can't understand what we want. So we saw, I would say, mid-2018, we started communicating with actors that had perfect fluency in English, um, perfect grammar, perfect spelling whole nine yards. And then to add to that, you know, we we examine the email uh, headers to see if we can pinpoint what time zone they're in. And a lot of these actors were no longer, you know, 10 hours ahead or eight hours behind, but only two hours behind. Um, and what we learned from that and in subsequent conversations with some of our, our threat partners is that the actors responded to this problem by hiring email operators in the U.S. and Canada who can speak English and move the, the transactions along at a much faster rate than they can with Google Translate. And that's a trend we've seen across the small game actors and the big game actors.
1: Uh, you had mentioned the emotional experience for a uh, client as they go through this. Maybe you could speak a bit more to what that experience looks like.
0: Sure. So and I'm I feel like I'm almost a little bit desensitized to it because my my routine is talking to people on the absolute worst days of their professional lives a lot of the time. Um, and especially for people that are on the small to mid size industry level, they, they don't even know what ransomware is half the time. Um, and it can be terrifying to walk in on that day and you have some deadlines to meet and you get this horrifying message on your computer that all of your stuff is gone and you have to pay in this digital currency to get anything back. Um, so the the tendency, if, if victims are in, in such a hurry that they have to reach out to the actor, we've come in so many times where the victim has reached out to the bad actor themselves and has and have just completely derailed the initial negotiation because they're upset. Um, they're, they're leveling threats against the actor, even though they don't really have many cards to play. But, you know, what are they supposed to think? Um, part of what we're here to do is take the emotion out of that and not give on to the attacker or let on to the attacker um, how urgent the situation really is. And the, and the last thing you want to do is antagonize a threat actor um, because they really do hold all the cards at the end of the day, and if you do have a negotiating standpoint, you want to keep that close to the vest until the end of the transaction. Um, So I had a, a client, for example, last year who was a home alarm monitoring company, and when they got hit with the ransomware, they couldn't detect if any of their customers were experiencing a home invasion. Now, that's an example of an attack where the urgency is super magnified, and we have to work very quickly you know, very brief terms um, to reach a resolution. It's not always the case uh, that that we have to act that way. And we we have plenty of clients who just get, you know, data encrypted that's not mission critical, but it's still something that they can't get back any other way. And in situations like that, it's very easy to to scale down the situation um, and approach things with a level head. But we've been in enough situations now with heightened emotions that we know it, it generally doesn't end well if we all are acting that way.
1: What are the best and worst experiences you've experienced with ransomware threat actors?
0: The worst experiences are always going to be when an actor deviates from the threat profile we've established for that group. So if we are working with a ransomware group that we have found to be extremely responsive and to have a very well-functioning tool and to have a relatively low price point, um occasionally you will get a rogue actor who doesn't want to play by the rules and will try to extort the victim five times over. Um, And that's always shocking because we do our best to set expectations with the victim ahead of time before we start communications. And if we have a problem child variant, we will warn them very explicitly. You know, we're going to expect a four-day turnaround, not a 24-hour turnaround. You know, this variant doesn't decrypt databases that well. It's when we don't know when something bad is coming that makes things problematic. And I think one of our worst experiences was just in September of this year. Um, I won't name the variant um, on this on this audio, um, but the actor gave us a tool and sort of led us to believe it was the decryption tool that the client was going to use to restore all the data. And it turned out to be a backdoor. Um and as soon as we started analyzing it, it was making call outs to Eastern European IP addresses. And when we confronted the actor about it and said, why did you give us this back door? Uh, they sort of indignantly responded. Well, how else do you think we're going to get into your environment? We're not giving you the tool. We have to decrypt everything ourselves. So it was a lot. It was a big headache, a lot of wasted time um, and ultimately didn't get to a successful resolution that we wanted to get. Um, And it was such a deviation from not just this group, but all ransomware in general. It was it was it was a blindside.
1: Wow. So if that's the worst experience that you've had, what's the best experience that you've had in dealing with these uh, these individuals?
0: So just like there's a trend for the worst, the trend with the best experiences to the extent that they can be good is always with the actors who are more seasoned. Uh, what, what we found is that there's this old guard of cyber extortion with actors who really do treat this as a business and care about their reputations as threat groups. Um, and they are the most cooperative, the least likely to double extort, and the most likely to improve their ransomware sample over time so that it's not causing corruption, so that the tool you know will maximize the restoration process. Um, so I think it was... At the beginning beginning of this year, the exchange that we were using to send money around froze, which had never happened before. And we had promised this big game actor that we would pay same day, which is a commitment we you know we make sometimes when, when they're within reasonable bounds. So very sheepishly, I had to go back to the actor and I said, I'm so sorry. We're having bank problems. I'm not going to be able to get you this money for another three days. And they had already told us the price goes up by $40,000 every single day. And the actor responded back within 30 seconds and said, no problem. We'll turn off the clock. Um, just let us know when you're ready. We're here. And they didn't give us any problems. Um, they, they didn't double the ransomware or increase it anymore. Um, and when we were ready to pay, they accepted it and gave us a completely flawless tool. Um, and the client was relieved. They you know, added a few days, but everyone got back to where they wanted to be, which was a relief.
1: Great. So this is more or less uh, just these are professional individuals
0: we actually have had actors ask us to leave positive reviews in security forums to bolster their reputation.
1: In working the ransomware space myself, I've seen quite a bit of variance. Can you maybe explain what a ransomware variant is and whether or not they're tied to specific individuals?
0: Sure. And just so you're you know when I'm using Terms I, I use ransomware variant interchangeably with ransomware family, ransomware threat group. Um, but to some folks, variant could mean, you know, this specific version of a malware within one family, if like GAN Crab 5.2 is a variant. Um, but by and large, ransomware variants are tied to established threat groups made up of two or more actors. Some are big, some are small. Occasionally, you might find the build your own ransomware kit that just you or I could use to make our own sample, Um, that's typically not the kind of activity that will gain any traction or be prolific enough to come on our radar. Um, The definition of of a ransomware group, I think used to just mean a team of hackers that all work together, But early 2018, we saw the spike in ransomware as a service, as a preferred platform, and that definition has now evolved. Um, And if you're not familiar with ransomware as a service, it's a subscription platform where the developer, the malware developer, has created a ransomware and he puts out an ad and says, you can use my ransomware for free or for, you know, very small entry fee. You just have to divert 30% of every ransom you collect to my wallet. So while we may refer to, for instance, the Dharma Ransomware Group as a group, it's really made up of hundreds of disconnected affiliate actors, which makes it a little more challenging to profile them and make generalizations about how they're going to behave.
1: It's just so interesting to see an enterprise of ransomware rather than just cyber criminals at large, I guess. So can you maybe talk a bit about who may be most at risk in falling victim to a ransomware attack?
0: I think that's one of the most burning questions we all have. Um, from, a, from a generic standpoint, the companies that are most at risk are the ones who think they aren't, right? Those are the ones that are going to maintain the attitude of, well, we won't get hit because X. And X might be, well, we have a really strong network perimeter and, and really complex passwords. Or I think the one I hear the most is, we're not really at risk because we don't have anything hackers would want which is the, you know, they have bigger fish to fry fallacy. And in a lot of areas of cybercrime, they'd be right. But what we all need to remember is cyber extortion uh, actors may not care about your data, but they are sure betting that you do. And they are definitely betting that if it's taken away from you, you are probably going to do whatever you can to get it back, even if that means paying a bad guy for it. And that's where certain industries do become More vulnerable. And we're talking about companies in deadline driven industries, things like manufacturing, publishing, and certainly organizations that provide critical services like healthcare, utilities, um, and transportation is, is a big one. So they will have the least flexibility in terms of time and recovery options, and they will experience the most pressure to resume operations compared with, say, people in retail or professional services or smaller niche industries.
1: So I guess the most important question is, what can we do to prevent it from happening to us?
0: Before you do anything concrete, you have to start with accepting that no one is going to be 100% secure. If you have employees and those employees have computers, you just cannot completely eliminate the risk that someone will click a bad email. So once you pivot from a prevention mindset and more towards a resiliency mindset, you're going to be on the right track. So maybe you can't stop John Doe from opening that phishing email, but you can enforce security policies that will prevent that compromise from spreading anywhere beyond John's workstation. You can insist on safeguards that maybe won't stop a bad file from getting downloaded, but it will block any outbound communication that prevents it from receiving instructions or replicating. So what I would really encourage folks to do, especially in the C-suite, is to sit down with your IT staff and ask them, what's the lowest priority on your to-do list right now? And I think what I what you'll find is a lot of projects that are treated as optional and are at the bottom of the list because the attitude is, if it, if, you know, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. Um, but those are exactly the kind of protocols and systems that the attackers are leveraging. They are counting on people not remembering to patch, not bothering to upgrade operating systems, and they're right a lot of the time. Um, so the best thing we can do is invest time and resources into comprehensive backup solutions and have contingency plans in place If the physical backups fail or if the cloud backups are corrupt, checking on them periodically to make sure the right data is being archived. Um, And I'm sure you've seen this before. I had a client recently who thought they had cloud backups. And when they contacted the provider, uh, they discovered they'd been backing up the same day in 2017 over and over, and they were missing two years of company data. They ended up having to pay. Wow.
1: Wow. Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to to educate us a bit around this, Lizzie. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. I can talk about ransomware pretty much all day.
2: (laughs) On our next episode in the Ransomware series, Containment, how a ransomware infection spreads within your network, what you can do to contain it, and what controls help you prevent it in the first place. Thanks again to our guest today, Lizzie Cookson of Kivu Consulting. To learn more about ransomware, download our 2020 breach briefing. In our report, Beasley Breach Response Services analyzes the trends we've seen in helping our policyholders through almost 4,000 incidents in 2019. Among the highlights, the number of ransomware incidents notified to Beasley increased 131% compared to 2018, and ransoms demanded by cyber criminals have increased exponentially. To download the 2020 breach briefing, visit the news section on www.beasley.com. For Control All Breach, I'm Frank Quinn.
0: Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about this topic and others, please visit beasleyacademy.com
1: for an extensive library of videos, podcasts, and blog posts.
0: I'm Alexis Granger at the Beasley Academy, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is for preliminary informational purposes only. Coverage is subject to each policy's terms and conditions. For additional information about Beasley, please visit Beasley.com.